Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. A little later in the program, we're going to talk to two reporters from Michigan Radio who are the hosts of a new podcast that takes a really close look at the Larry Nassar scandal and really looks at it from the point of view of the really brave women who came forward to tell stories of sexual abuse. So you're going to want to stay tuned to that segment. It'll get started at about 40 minutes past the hour. But first today, Ari Shapiro co-hosts All Things Considered here on NPR. He's a familiar name and voice if you're a listener. He's back here in Michigan this week taking a look at our interesting political and voting dynamics. And he is checking up on the Flint water crisis, which is one of the stories he has followed closely. Ari Shapiro, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yes, it is great to have you here in Michigan. What brings you back? Uh, You know, this is, I realize, a state that I have visited more than any other since I became host of All Things Considered three years ago, because (laughs) there are so many interesting things happening here. See, when you say interesting, I might hear crazy. (laughs) um, Well, to the extent that the country might feel a little crazy right now, I think Michigan may feel a little crazy as well. But one of the things that I love about reporting in Michigan is that it contains so many local stories that are emblematic of national stories. I mean, you just gave the example of the Larry Nassar story, which obviously ties into such larger themes. We're not looking at that while we're here, but we're going to be doing, and these are all going to air on Friday on All Things Considered. We're going to be hosting the show from here in Michigan, from Michigan Radio. Um, So we're doing a story about politics, about voting, looking at are people who supported President Obama in 2008, 2012, and then Trump in 2016, have they made a long-term shift, or was that all about President Trump? Is that going to apply to the midterms? Um, we're doing a story about 10 years after the auto industry's implosion. What happened to one family that all worked at the same plant? What paths did they take 10 years later? And what does that reflect about the economy and the world today? Um, we're doing a really great music feature about an artist that I'm kind of obsessed with who's from Flint. His name is Tunde Alaniran. And then, as you mentioned, we're checking in with a family in Flint that we've been following now for almost three years. Uh, The boy who was six years old when I met him is now nine years old, and we spent some time there yesterday seeing how things have changed or not changed since the water crisis began. So let's start with that first story about families or people who supported Donald Trump two years ago who four or eight years ago supported uh, uh, Barack Obama. That's a that's a story that is not just important here in Michigan. It's important around the country. And right. I know NPR has been visiting lots of communities around the country in the run up to the fall elections, taking the temperature of, of voters and, and, and people in those communities. One of the places they went was Lexington, Kentucky, mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. It's a place I know really well. That's where I started my professional career oh. in, in journalism 27 years ago. Uh, wh- what are you guys learning about that dynamic, this idea of people who made that switch two years ago and now have another choice in front of them? I think we're seeing both parties transform Um, For this political story, we walked DeQuinder, the street that runs, as you know, a long way separating Troy from Sterling Heights. And it's such an interesting street because Mm -hmm. on the one side, you have Troy, which was uh, historically more Republican, a little more well-educated, a little more wealthy, that is now trending purple more towards blue. And on the other side of the street, you have have Sterling Heights, which was historically a little more working class, a little more blue-collar, a little more unionized, reliably Democratic – 
that supported President Trump two years ago and is now trending a little more purple towards red. And so on either side of this one street here in the Detroit area, you have this embodiment of how the national parties are changing. And so often when we do a reporting project like this, we try to tell a big story by telling a small story. And so here you have one specific street dividing two specific towns that in a way tells the story of the two national parties in this country and how they're transforming. Sure. Uh, national politics are, of course, quite crazy right now. I'm sure you're bored every day in your job, right? It's uh, just this. unbelievable. <laughs> you would think that two years into this administration, almost two years, at some point would have sort of reached cruising altitude, and yet I <laughs> still remain out of breath like it's a marathon that never ends. Right. Uh, to mix a metaphor. <laughs> right. But, but um, what is changing about politics right now? And, and by that, I mean, what's the sort of core of the things that we see flare up on social media or flare up on the evening news? Is it a change in Americans that, that you're sensing or is it a change in uh, or is it or is it a temporal issue? Right. Yeah. Is it just about now? Yeah. Uh, so. President Trump has obviously changed politics. He's changed the Republican Party. He's changed the rules of how the f political fights are waged. And, and he is, in some ways, the driver of that. But also, in some ways, I think he's the reflection of that. When you look at surveys of confidence that Americans have in institutions, whether those institutions are schools or newspapers or churches or banks or government— Confidence in institutions is near record lows. And when people don't have faith in those kinds of institutions, they choose leaders who are going to shake up those institutions, who are going to break established accepted norms and try new things and create a little bit of chaos. And, and I think President Trump is a reflection of that. And so the kind of uh, upheaval that we're seeing in politics right now is in some ways a reflection of who President Trump is. But when you peel that back a layer or two and ask, well, how did we get to this place where the leader that we've chosen is this instigator of chaos? I think the answer has to be because people were and are disillusioned with the institutions that historically have bound us together as a society and 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 made American life cohesive. And and for some good reasons. I mean, after the clergy sex abuse scandal, people appropriately lost confidence in the church. After the financial collapse, people understandably lost confidence in the banks. But that can have some insidious consequences, too. And that's an important point, I think, going forward, because President Trump will either be president for four years or for eight years, or I guess if you're a Democrat, you're hoping that it gets uh, cut short somehow before that. But after he's president, I think there's a real question about who comes after him and what kind of leader they try to be. But there's also a real question about who we are as Americans. Do we do we lean into the chaos, for instance, yeah. and keep it going, even though that person who seems to embody that won't be there forever? And this is a trend that started long before President Trump, where there used to be Democrats in Congress who were more conservative than the most liberal Republicans, and there were Republicans in Congress who were more liberal than the most conservative Democrats, and people in American life lived next door to neighbors who disagreed with them politically. And more and more, we've seen not only our elected representatives, but our neighborhoods, our families, our social circles sorting into groups of like-minded individuals, which is only exacerbated by social media, where we're exposed to points of view that reaffirm our existing beliefs and just reassure us that we're right. People are less likely to 
read a newspaper that tells them something that they might disagree with and more likely to tune into a commentary that just reaffirms what they already believe. And as people then get more and more entrenched, this kind of tribalism, I think, gets exacerbated. And it gets even more difficult to to accomplish things and to see people who disagree with you as three-dimensional human beings with a legitimate point of view. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Ari Shapiro. He is the co-host of All Things Considered here on NPR. We are talking about his visit here to Michigan to check up on us uh, as we get closer to the midterm elections there in town this week, doing stories about politics here in the region, how they fit into the national picture. Uh, He will also take a look at some things in Flint and with the auto industry. What's it doing Uh, almost 10 years now? now after the reorganization or the bankruptcy that uh, it faced. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. How do you think you've seen politics or the political mood shift here in Michigan? Does it seem like our region is changing? Is your neighborhood or community shifting its politics? How about your family? Have the conversations about politics changed around your dinner table or at holidays, which of course are coming up? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page. You can put your comments there. If you go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, we will try to work you into the conversation. Before we get to the phones, Ari, I want to give you a chance to talk about Flint, which is a story that you've followed pretty closely. You're back in Michigan this week and in part checking up on Flint. Uh, what, What what is it that uh, that you've learned about Flint and water and Michigan over time, and what do you expect to learn this week? Uh, the thing that I just kept hearing from so many people, which ties into what we've been talking about, is that trust has been so severely broken. This is not a surprise to you. Mm-hmm. I think everybody who's paid any attention to Flint has heard this. Um, the government told people for so long that their water was safe to drink when it wasn't. People got sick from it. People died from it. And now that the government once again says the water is safe to drink, people say, well, then why aren't the water faucets turned on in my public school? Well, then why are, you know, uh, doctors telling us to why – and, and yet the government still isn't handing out the bottled water. So we went to a water distribution site, just one of three where the water is donated by companies and charities. And people had lined up their cars literally the night before so that they would make sure to get some when the water distribution opened at 10 a.m. Uh, by the time we got there at 11, there was still a line of cars down the block. And when I post this on social media, people around the country are appalled that this is happening in the United States. They're amazed that three years later, it's not resolved. And when we go back and talk to the people who we've been talking to for three years, they say we feel like the country has forgotten us. Hmm. Um, there was a really heartbreaking moment that you'll hear in the story on Friday afternoon where um, the the woman, the mother of the household that we've been following was sitting with her family and we were talking about the water and her nine-year-old said, why is our water poisoned? Why isn't anybody else's? And she gave this pretty factual answer about the Flint River and the and the poisons in the Flint River. And then we were alone with her without her kids around and she said that that was the first time her nine-year-old had ever asked the question and she had a really hard time answering. And I said, well, what would you have said if the person asking the question wasn't your son. And she said, the country doesn't care about black people. And then she started to cry. And that sentiment is something that we've heard from a lot of people. And you can argue with whether it's true or not, but you can't argue with the fact that a lot of people feel that way right now, which I think is really harmful and corrosive. Yeah. 
Uh, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Ari, you tripped me up there with that story. That is an incredible, powerful sign of what got broken in Flint and how hard it will be to put it back together. And Flint has become so central to the gubernatorial campaign. And when we ask people how they feel about Flint being in all these ads for governor, they say, you know, talk is great, but action is what's needed. And I think people feel like they're being used as political pawns and they're dubious that anything will actually get fixed no matter who wins. Let's uh, take some phone calls here. Got a lot of folks want to participate in this conversation. Let's start with Carrie in Riverview. Carrie, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you. I'm so happy to be able to um, have a little platform here to to encourage artists and creative people to just stand up and lean in, as you guys were saying, lean into chaos. Artists are great at chaos, and we could do some very simple things to encourage voting, such as paint rocks blue and write vote on them and lay them around everywhere. Hmm. Um, Get some color out there. Uh, It's hard to talk about, but I think that if we um, take chaos back, we have to accept that this is the way it is, at least right now. But we can do something. Carrie, I really appreciate uh, the idea and the sentiment there. That's that's really unusual. It's not what I necessarily expected to hear from the listeners about this, but uh, I appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go to Amelia in Southfield. Amelia, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, good morning. Hi. Good morning. I just wanted to mention that um, when the economy collapsed in 2008, I left and went to California. I came back three years ago. And it saddens me, the state of Michigan today. Uh, the Detroit public schools are still in shambles. Uh, Flint had, doesn't have clean water. Um, everybody I know is working part-time jobs, multiple part-time jo- jobs, and we haven't even raised, raised the sales tax. Hmm. It's still 6%. Right. and has been for my whole life, it seems like. I'm 31. This is one interesting thing that I've been asking people about as we talk to people about this recovery and 10 years later with unemployment at a near record low, lower than it's been in 50 years, does it feel like a recovery to people? And I'm amazed at the number of people who say, yes, I have a job. I'm not unemployed, but this does not feel like a recovery. I'm struggling and everybody I know is struggling. Especially in a community like Sterling Heights, working class uh, heavily dependent on auto jobs and things like that. There's no question. More people are back at work. More people feel at least some stability, I guess, economic stability in their lives. But they don't feel like they can get ahead. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I also think they're looking around and they're seeing lots of other people seem to get way, way, way ahead. Yeah. Uh, and I think that gives them a lot of, a lot of aggravation and, and concern. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call. Uh, let's go to Devin in Warren. Devin, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for the, both of the work you do. Um, oh, thanks. So I just wanted to talk about the kind of the change in the political climate at my house. I live with my grandparents who are like uh, hardcore Fox News uh, conservatives. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's just been hard for me. Politics has become more about like social issues and identity because 
you know, I am a closeted lesbian to them and and everything that they stand for goes against who I am and, and, and the, the language that they use at home, you know, the slurs, racial slurs, um, everything. It, it's just, it's really hard. Politics can't even be about financial issues for me because they're wanting to take away my rights. So and I, does that I feel like a conversation that you can't have with them? No, they, it's never gone well for me. Hmm. So I just kind of keep it to myself. Because in my experience, so much of what can solve this problem is actually interacting with people who are different from you, finding out that people close to you, people in your family, people you love, have different points of view, have different life experiences, and sharing those lived experiences. And if it doesn't change people's minds, at least it helps people understand the humanity of somebody who's different from them. And Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Devin. Oh, no, no, no. Go oh, ahead. I, I was going to say, it, it's hard to find the opportunities, though, for a lot of people to do exactly what you're talking about there, Ari. Where are the spaces where you can feel safe and confident going to talk with people who don't agree with what you uh, think, who may not look like you, who may not come from the same kind of background? I, I feel like right now uh, we live in a world where people, as you point out, are far more insular than they used to be, and it's harder to find places where exchanges like the ones you're talking about are are even possible, let alone encouraged. Mm -hmm. and, and so much of that has to do with, I think, the deterioration of the kinds of institutions that we're, we're talking about and the deterioration of confidence in them, whether that's a union hall or a church or a school. Yeah, yeah. Devin, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Charlie. Charlie in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit. Hi, th thanks for taking my call to two of my favorite public radio hosts. Oh, thanks. Thank you very um, much. Um, I wanted to echo what the, what the mother in, in Flint said. Um, I think, unfortunately, a big part of our country doesn't care what, what happens to the African-American population. I mean, look at the ad that we talked about the other day on the program. Um, they really don't care about the black community except for getting as many votes as they can get to keep themselves in power and, you know, to keep people where they want them. And, and it's just sad and it's wrong. And, uh, you know, to me, I worry about our country. Are we ever going to get out of a two party system that just hates each other and can't get anything done? I think we're constitutionally bound to stick with this. And I just don't see there ever being any wherewithal well, or ability I think there are two questions it. in what you just asked. One question is, are we ever going to get out of a two party system? The answer to that question is likely not. The other question is, are we ever going to get out of a two-party system where everybody hates each other and you can't get anything done? <laughs> and I think there might be a little more hope of getting out of that. It's obviously a long road, and it's not easy, but I, I do think there might be a little more hope of that. Mm -hmm. uh, Charlie, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Aaron. Aaron in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I, uh, like I was telling the screener, being a 64-year-old, soon to be 65-year-old black man in America, uh, having lived through uh, a lot of uh, change and a lot of uh, uh, unrest. Uh, but the lady's uh, uh, comment about people not caring about black people in America does touch a, a chord. But I was speaking to some other guys that that's my age, and, and there was a time when Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X and, and people spoke about separation, but we know now that the world has shrunk to a point where that is not possible, it's not feasible, 
And what really needs to happen in this country is that we, uh, the non-black people in this country, need to be able to stand next to uh, black people and recognize and acknowledge that they are equal. That has to happen from within. But as long as we have a governmental system that is still promoting the separatism because it's profitable to capitalism, because a small percentage, uh, a fraction of a percentile of people benefit from that separation and from the uh, uh, discord that happens because of it, we are not going to come out of this. There should not be room in the streets for black people to protest because of what's happening to black people, because of all the white people who claim to be liberal mm. and claim to not be a part of the problem. There should not be room for black people to be in the streets to protest uh, black being uh, uh, or, or, or uh, uh, the, what's the saying, uh, 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 equal or, or we are people or whatever that movement was, uh, it shouldn't be room for black people to even be out there because there should be so many white people who know that it's not real anymore. That was uh, 500 years ago when those things could be passed. But now we know there yeah. there is no difference in the differences in our system yeah. Aaron, that promotes that. Aaron, I uh, really appreciate you calling and sharing your thoughts. Ari, go ahead. Yeah, I, Aaron, I hear what you're saying. And if you don't mind my asking, I'm curious as to whether things seem significantly better, worse, or the same as when you were younger. Because while the challenges are real, it's also, I, I, speaking as a white person, I look at the world today and I think, well, things are a lot better for minorities, for people of color than than they were in the past. And that doesn't mean there's no work left to be done. But what what does your experience say? Let, let me let me uh, answer that by asking you this: uh, If a person is uh, restricted in a small space, and then they're restricted in a restricted in a larger space, are they not still restricted? Hmm. You know the the changes that you. And, and other people want to claim as being changes, it's really not changes. Uh, a fish in a fishbowl is still a fish in a fishbowl. Black people have nothing. We have nothing that is not given to us, governed or, 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 or ruled over by someone else. There is no freedom without freedom of your own uh, uh, property or self. You know, we need to stop pretending like we care about equality and start acting like equality is something that is, hmm. not something that needs to be gained. Yeah. Aaron, and until that mindset changes, nothing will change. Aaron, I really appreciate your calling and sharing your thoughts on that, uh, on that subject. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Ari Shapiro, who is the co-host of All Things Considered. Also, don't forget, if you have to miss any of today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation. Just go to podcast, iTunes or wherever you download podcasts, download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you and listen when you are ready. When we come back, we're going to talk a little more about Ari's journey to being co-host of All Things Considered. Where do you get a start in journalism? Stay with us on Detroit Today.
You're listening to Detroit Today, and my guest is Ari Shapiro, who is the host of all things, co-host of All Things Considered here on NPR. He is in Michigan this week, checking up on a number of stories about our politics, about our beloved auto industry, how it's doing, and about the Flint water crisis. How are people in Flint surviving still without the guarantee of clean water when they turn on their taps? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. Uh, Ari, I want to talk a little about you. How did you get into journalism, and how did you choose radio as the medium? I grew up in an NPR household. It was on in my parents' house all the time when I was a kid. This was in Portland, Oregon. And um, I went to college at Yale. I majored in English. I actually never did any journalism. And when I graduated, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I applied for everything I could think of, including an NPR internship. And I got rejected for everything, (laughs) including the NPR internship. I went back to a summer camp where I had been a counselor, trying to kind of bide my time and figure out what to do. And then I found out that Nina Totenberg, the legendary legal affairs correspondent at NPR, hires her own interns separate from the NPR internship program. So I applied to her. She gave me a chance. And I set foot in NPR just after New Year's. It was January 2nd, 2001. And I never left. Oh, wow. You know, I didn't, I don't, I don't think I knew that about you. I uh, covered the Supreme Court for Knight Ritter newspapers from 2003 to 2007 and got to know Nina pretty well. Yeah, and she was the folks. dean, is still the still dean of the, the Supreme dean, Court right, Press Corps. Right. That's who we all patterned our work <laughs> after. Yeah. Uh, you, you also covered Congress and the White House. I covered the Justice Department the Justice and the Department White House. The White yeah. House. So I covered legal affairs for about five years during. The Bush and early Obama administration, it was a lot of uh, torture debates and rendition, interrogation, all of the war on terror type stuff. Do do you miss that ever? (laughs) Excuse me. There's something great about being a beat reporter because you get to know one issue so deeply. You can really feel ownership and mastery of it. But I really love the diversity of my job now. I love that in a given day, I can do stories about arts, business, science, politics, culture, all of the above. And having had the experience of covering the Justice Department for five years, covering the White House for four years, being an international correspondent based in London and really traveling the world for a couple of years, I really now enjoy getting to do the radio equivalent of every section of the newspaper. Right. You know, <laughs> right, right. No, it's a, it's, it's different though when you're not day to day with the same people, right. dealing with the same issues, uh, the pacing is different, and you sort of have to adjust to that. Yeah, I would say the biggest drawback of the job that I have now hosting All Things Considered is that I can't be a perfectionist anymore. <laughs> right. When I was a reporter, within deadline, I could get something exactly to where I wanted it to be before it was on the air, as long as I'm at the deadline. Now, on All Things Considered, there will be, I don't know, five to ten things on my plate on any given day, and I sort of have to say, okay, well, I can be a perfectionist about these three, and I can be a collaborator on these two, and on this one or two, I'm really going to have to lean heavily on my wonderful producers and editors who really make the show happen, who you don't hear on the air, who I just have to rely on in order to get done all the things that I do in any given day on the show. Um, And so while I might like to spend hours over each and every little segment, there are definitely days that I wish I could put a little 
star next to certain segments and a little X next to other segments. Like, listener, pay close attention to this one, <laughs> and you can probably gloss over this one. But, you know, it all airs on the radio, and the next day we start with a blank slate that's again. A, that's that's the thing, that blank slate every day yeah. sort of starting and, and have to but have the, something to, to go with. But the great thing about it is that unlike a book, which you spend a year – two years writing and then it sits on the shelf forever as the book that you wrote and it stares <laughs> you down. With radio, you do something and it's great and people remember it or it's not great and people forget it and the next day you get to do something else. You get to come back to it every day. Yeah. That's one of the great things about this show is every day we re-engage with the listeners uh, and the callers on something different than we did yesterday and if uh, we made made a mess of things yesterday eh, no one seems to remember <laughs> the day right as long as it's not too big of a mess <laughs> that's exactly right uh, again 3135771019 is the number on the phones to talk with Ari Shapiro the co-host of All Things Considered here on NPR let's go to Barb in Detroit Barb welcome to Detroit today Hi, how are you? Good. Good. Thanks for taking my call. I um, just wanted to say you're both great, first of all, and well, are, you are the voice of news to me <laughs> every day going home. <laughs> um, I just had a recent, in- I guess a lucky situation made me think. I was in New York, uh, happened to have dinner with, by chance, one of the very few female traders on the New York Stock Exchange floor. Wow. Fascinating woman. Hmm. Um, and... She really wanted to talk politics. That wasn't what we were there for, but it was fine. And she was a very staunch Republican, Trump supporter. Um, and it was just fascinating as me being on the other end of the coin. All she cared, in my opinion, about was money. And I know based on her job, that's, there's a reason for that. Um, but to her, everything else was unimportant. Mm. And it just got me really thinking as a Democrat You know, so much, I think, like your caller earlier said, we care, tend to care more about social issues more than other things. And I think I'm curious for both of your point of view, would we be in a better place from politics if both sides of the coin could find a way to be concerned about each other's priorities? Meaning if Democrats took the idea of doing well by doing good instead of just doing good. <laughs> that's a great, that's a really interesting way to, to, to think about that issue, Barb. I'm really glad you called and interjected that. Ari, yeah, I mean, the first. thing that I come back to when I think about these kinds of issues is on three of the most controversial issues today, guns, immigration, abortion, you can find positions that a strong majority of Americans support. Um, You can get well over 50 percent of Americans in polls to say that they support legalized abortion with certain restrictions or certain kinds of gun regulation that still enable people to carry firearms or certain kinds of immigration policies that enable a path to legalization and border enforcement. Like there are not total consensus, but close to consensus issues on these very divisive subjects. And yet because of the political incentives for running to the margins and you know using these issues as cudgels to beat the other side with, you can't get policymakers to reach those near consensus positions. Yeah. Well, and back to the reporting that you guys are doing right here in Southeast Michigan, uh, Troy and Sterling Heights have a number of things in common, all kinds of issues that they should be able to work together on. But a they. St- they straddle a county a county line that's important, uh, but they also exist in a state where 
everything is hyper-localized when it comes to government. There's probably 10 or more school districts within just a few miles of those two communities, and each one would fight to the death to preserve what it had to not get uh, to not let another community get the better of of them. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things in our institutional lives, I think, that reinforce that division that makes us think we're more different than we are. It is interesting for me to spend time in Michigan because Washington, D.C. is such a polarized environment where people are so engaged in blue team, red team wars, mm-hmm. to describe politics crudely, <laughs> um, that to come to Michigan where virtually everybody we've met and interviewed splits the ticket. They'll vote for a Democrat for one office and a Republican for another office, and it changes from one election to another. But it's a it's a really helpful tonic and <laughs> reminder that that's actually how most of the country is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, Ari Shapiro, co-host of All Things Considered on NPR. It was really great to have you here with us. Oh, thanks today. for having me. It's been really fun, yeah, Stephen. I appreciate time, it. Next time you're in town, we'll have you back. I would love to. Okay. Up next, we are going to talk about a new podcast that looks at the details of the Larry Nasser scandal. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Thank you.